just a simple way that we could take the offering and no one considers Kirby Church their home. This morning we're going to wrap up a series of messages that Tommy, James, and I preached together or taught together about a return on our investment and the importance of pouring into and investing in the next generation. I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes as you're taking the offering and that's fine. And I just would ask that God speak to your heart, whether you're a parent, whether you're a young adult, whether you are a, uh, a person just who uh, wants to... Uh, member of the church, that God would just speak to our hearts today. So Father, in your mighty and holy name, take what we cannot do, and Lord, allow your word to be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, so we have the sight, the spiritual sight, and the spiritual will to walk in the path that you've shown us. In your name we pray, and everybody says, amen. If you were to sit down with a fund manager and talk about investing, sooner or later he would bring up this idea or the concept of compound investment. The idea of compound investment is that you make a consistent deposit over time to a trusted fund manager and then you not only earn interest, but the goal of compounding interest is that you start earning interest on your interest. It's kind of the magic of compounding interest. The key to it is consistent investments, a faithful fund manager, and then time to earn the investment on the investment. Really that's what we've been talking about the last three weeks. We've been talking about consistent investments. God is our faithful fund manager. He, he takes those investments that we've taken and put into our tot spot, our children, our teen, and our young adult ministries, and, and then we trust God for that return on that investment. Tommy spoke two weeks ago about this, and, uh, and especially to the parents, he challenged us to keep on making those consistent investments. He talked about how in life we have a lot of things that we invest in. We invest in a home and that'll get eaten by termites or blown away in a storm. He said we invest in cars that rust or broke, get broken down and sooner or later end up as scrap metal. We invest in clothes that go out of style, that get too small, rarely do they get too big, only to be discarded. This challenge, we have to invest in the next generation. We were challenged very pointedly to give the next generation a faith worth following. Last week, James Miller spoke, and he did an awesome job, and between Tommy's and, and James's message, you should have gotten the idea... That the key person in the home, as far as spiritual investment, the key person and the key influencer in your home for spiritual investment is not Tommy Swindle, it's not Don Myers, it's not Pastor Mike, but it's the dad. I'm not trying to shaft the mom, but I'm telling you, over the last 30 years, since 1980s, everything that I have read said dad has the major influence in the home. That when dad speaks up, the kids listen up. When it matters. I mean, our dads are always there hollering, screaming, and hooting, and ranting, and raving at ball games, right? Making that sound like it's the most important thing. But then when it comes to spiritual issues, dads, we are too 
quiet. Survey after survey shows that your child, your teenager, your young adult will listen if we engage them in the conversation. We give the next generation a faith worth following. So the Bible, that's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 had strong words for specifically the dads because he understood the importance of that role of spiritual leadership. Be the leader. They will talk if we'll love them enough to listen and not provoke them, provoke them to wrath. Then James finished up and challenged for us to live a life for Christ with no regret. To live a life that was passionate, Christ-centered, God-honoring, spirit-filled, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, following Christ with a bold faith, embracing the work of the Holy Spirit in our life so that we live walking with Christ with no regret. Today I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22. I'm trying to wrap up four weeks And what really is a burden on our hearts, Tommy, James, and mine, and our church's heart. And I want to try to speak to parents, to young people, young adults, teenagers, since you're here in this service. And I want to speak to us as a church. If I had all the time in the world, that would take me about two hours and 45 minutes. Since I don't, listen quick. This is probably the most famous of all the Proverbs of parenting. There are proverbs that deal with discipline. Spare the rod, you know, spoil the child, that kind of thing. Proverbs, this is the one that has the most kind of hype and talk about it. Before we talk about what the verse is, let me tell you what a proverb is. A proverb is a self-contained unit that presents a capsule of truth about life, the world, and the way and or the way God works. Let me say that again. A, pair of, a proverb contains a capsule of truth about life, the world, and or the way God works. The book of Proverbs contains many hundreds of these sayings of the wise. They are written in Hebrew poetic style, which is very elegant in its natural language, and it uses many parallels to it. They often employ bold imagery and daring use of language. They're short, memorable, concise, and transferable to people of all times. Sometimes they state the obvious. Sometimes they reveal to us what we cannot see. But a proverb is a short, concise, capsule of truth. The word of God about life or the way or, and or the way God acts as recorded in the Proverbs. This verse has been so misunderstood because many people lift this verse out of the literary style of proverb and drop it into the genre of a promise. I want you to know, first and foremost, this is a proverb. I claim it as a proverb because this proverb has truth in it. This morning, we kind of want to unearth Some of that truth. So what's the truth of Proverbs 22.8? The Bible says, train a child. Wait, just go ahead and stay. flip back one there, Peach. Train a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not 
turn from it. Let's break the verse down just a minute. When the Bible says train up a child, the word means to dedicate. The word train means to dedicate. It's the word for henak in the Hebrew. Everybody say henak. No, no, no. Be a, be a good Hebrew here. Say henak. Put the ending on the last word, uh, last syllable, henak. One, two, three. Well done. The word Hanak means to dedicate. It was used frequently in the Bible. Especially in the first five books of the Bible. When they dedicated the tabernacle, they Hanaked it. When they uh, consecrated the sacrifices and dedicated it, it, they Hanaked it. When they dedicated the, the utensils in the tabernacle for use, specific use in the purposes of God. And that system of offering atonement for sins for the nation of Israel, they Hanaked it. They dedicated it. The word train, hanak, then comes to mean, and, and it's kind of original concept, it, it speaks of dedication, but it has the idea of setting aside, narrowing, or hedging in. If you and I were to go out to a great big field, and we had ten guys and one football, and we started to play football... Before we started to play, we would take shoes or plates or shirts or something, and we would mark the out-of-bounds, and we would mark the end zones, and we would say, you have to play within this box. This is where the game is to be played. As a parent, you and I are to mark out hedges of all of the options in life that our children could embrace. We're to narrow it down so that we train them up, we narrow the, the way down of all the things they could do. We narrow it down so that they go in the way. Now, in the way is a subject of much debate. Some people think that in the way means that we as parents are supposed to discover their, their vocational aptitude. If they're good with their hands, maybe steer them towards the trades. If they're good with the mind, boy, then off to college. If they're good with neither one, they live with you until they're 50. I mean, it's just something kind of like that, you know? Other people think, no, no, it doesn't have to do with vocation. It has to do with personality. That some children are naturally daredevils by, by nature, and they'll just hang over the side of ball stadiums, and they will jump off high things to even higher things and and they'll do these risk-taking daredevil things and while other children are timid and a little bit shy and they hide behind mommy or daddy's leg you know when they're three and four and 14 and 24 and 32 I mean they they just have this timid timidity about them and so some people think while you find your child's bent and your personality and, and you Shape your parenting according to their bent. The last and what I think is the most biblically correct view of this, and I I do think there's some of the first two things I mentioned, but what I think is the most biblically correct is that the way refers to the way of wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a book about the way of wisdom. And wisdom comes from the fear of God, knowing the right way to walk. And so when we talk about the way, we're talking about the path of the wise, the path of wise and godly living. 
So we as parents are to train up our children. Out of the, all the different paths and options in life, we narrow it down and we train them up in the path of wise and godly living so that when they're old and even if they walk away from the truth we've invested in them, that investment remains in them. Does that make sense? The job of parenting is that we train them up. We narrow down the options. We put a hedge. We put borders. We put parameters. And we say, listen, this is the best way. This is the wise way. This is God's way. And if you live a life according to God's word, he has promised he'll take care of you. He'll bless you. He'll watch over you. It's not going to be a bed of roses. But I'm telling you, walking with Christ is a whole lot better than walking without Christ. So we tell them. And the path. And so parents, our job is to train them up. It's to train them up. Some parents have done their best to train their children up. And I've seen the hurt in your eyes week after week. As you know you've done your best and you've raised them to church. And you may have not have been the best parent, but you did the best that you knew how. You brought them to church and that in and of itself is not the cure-all. All right? But you brought them to church and your children have taken that step away from that wise and godly path. And they're on a path that of their own making. And I want to say a word to you parents. To us parents. I, I, I think that probably the best example of what we are to do in that situation comes from the book of Luke and the story of the prodigal son. You don't have to turn there. The story's found in verse 15. The, the, the father had two sons, and the younger son looked to the father and said, give me my inheritance, which was just absolutely out of social protocol for the day. And when that happened, the father gave him his inheritance. Now, the father did not become destitute, poor, he was, a, in the story, a successful businessman. He had connections literally all over the region to be successful. And, and, and so he, you know, was not short of means here. He was still a very wealthy man, even though he gave his son his inheritance. All I'm simply trying to say is the father of the prodigal had within him the means and the ability to chase down his son wherever he went find him, either take care of him there, or to capture him and bring him back home to the father's house. He did none of that. In the story of the prodigal son, the father realized that, his, that he did not assume responsibility for changing his son's heart and mind. This is tough parenting right here. Because we as parents, we want our children to so do what's right, don't we? We want them to so embrace the truth of God's word and to passionately sell out and live for Jesus, as James said last week, with no regret. And yet, the path that you have tried to teach them to walk in, they've stepped away from that path and they're going down another path. They, listen, moms and dads, you cannot assume responsibility for things they are responsible for. Man, when that happens, everything just gets all messed up. See, you made the investment over the years. 
You made the investment. You have a fund manager, God in heaven, who takes those investments, the words that you shared, the devotions that you had, those teachable moments where you poured truth in their life, those meaningful talks and discussions, those come-to-Jesus meetings, those disciplined moments where you had with your child, those times when you were in their face or by their side, where you talked to them about Christ and about all the great things that God can do and will do for their life. And sooner or later, there is a point, moms and dads, where you step back not from leadership, but your child has to make that decision for themselves. And when your child walks away, it hurts. James talked about the 80-20 principle last, last week, or the 80-20 you know, vacuum, or the hole where 80% of the people leave the, the church. Man, I got to thinking about that. And as he kept talking about the 80-20, I knew the numbers, but as I'm sitting over there listening to James, it realized that he's got four kids. I did the math. 80% of four kids is three. He'd lose three out of four. I got three kids. If that 80-20 number holds true, I lose two out of my three to the path that's wise and godly. So what do we do as parents? Well, the Bible says we kind of follow the model of the, the prodigal father. He did two things. Number one, he waited. I hate waiting. I mean, used to, I can remember when drive throughs were a novelty. Remember when all that happened and it was like, great, you didn't have to get out of your car. Now I get ticked off if I have to wait five minutes in a, in a line, you know? I hate waiting. Any other bad waiters out there? Yeah? How many of you wives are married to an impatient, horrible waiter? I'm not kidding. I was in, I was in Kmart. Uh, I think it was last week, might have been two weeks ago, we ran in, we, we had these big yellow jackets everywhere, I had to get some hot shot, I got one thing, hot shot, to kill God's creation, those yellow jackets, I had one item, one item, hot shot, got the picture, I'm in Kmart, I'm in Kmart, there are four or five people standing around talking, there is one cashier, and there's four people in line. With, I don't know what sale was going on at Kmart, but each of them people had two buggies full of stuff. And there I stood at the end of the line with one item. Then you do one of those things, you know, I'm getting a little... Because I'm thinking, anybody in business, just open up register number two. Do one of those things. Register number two is open, please, you know, come on down. I'm telling you, I found myself, I, I figured out who the manager was. He was the guy that none of the other three or four was talking to. So I just kept looking at him. I was sending the signal. <laughs> Open up, register to. And I was giving him the look. I, I, mean, I, I got a look. I'm telling you, I was giving this guy the look. Nothing. I'm impatient. You know what wise investing is? Every time the stock market has gone down in the last year, and boy, it's gone up and down, hasn't it? What, does, what, what do all the financial advisors say? Be patient. Wait it out. See, sometimes we think when we wait, God is just sitting back there doing nothing. 
That is the wrong concept of God. God is a, a God of creation. God is a God who is always at work taking your investments, those things that you have poured in, the lives of your top spot children, your children's church children, the teens and the young adults, and bringing them so that they come to a point and a place, not of a one-time decision, but a multiple decisions to sell out and live a life of no regret for Jesus Christ. You just have to keep pouring in. And then you pray. You pray. Sometimes I hear parents talk like this and they go, and they go, well, you know, all I can do is pray. And while the words are right, the attitude is wrong. When we go, oh, all I can do is pray, it's like, well, I know it really isn't going to make any difference, but I guess I'm going to go ahead and pray anyway because I don't know anything else to do. Don't you feel like that sometimes? You might as well admit it. Listen, the greatest thing in this world you can do is to go to God in prayer and go into the presence of God and get the creator, ruler, sovereign one of this universe involved in what concerns you. Because I guarantee you it is already a concern of the heart of God. And it's when you get two or three praying together. Man, I'm telling you, the Bible says when two or three pray together, it's touching any one thing. God says, uh-oh, watch out. Stuff is about to happen. But we look at prayer as just kind of like a last resort. Prayer is the privileged first resort. It's the first option, not the last when all else fails, go to prayer. And so we pray. We pray as parents. We pray as parents together, not only for our children, we pray for others' children who are struggling. We pray. At the end of the service, we're going to have a, an altar call. And man, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, my wife is here in the service. We're going to kneel down, honey, and we're going to go pray for our kids. Really, she just needs to pray anyway, but that's for another thing. Just kidding. Pray. Seek the face of God on your kids' behalf because we are never done training up our child. The role may change because of a season in life. The function may change or the, the approach may change because of marriage. But we never get done training our children. You never get done of praying for your children. So parents, we are to train them up. The second thing... I want to, that says in the verse, and, and it's implied, and, and the implication is clear, train up a child when, in the way it should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. The second thing is that young adults grow up. It's expected for you to grow up. Amen? Hey, y'all saying, I, I got children in this service. I don't want to amen too loud here. That's all right. Paul addressed this. He said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child. But when I became a man, when I grew up, I put away childish things. You know what sociologists say about you guys? Yeah, if you're a teenager, if you're a good-looking teenager, raise your hand. Yeah. We got two dishonest guys right down here. Hey, listen, you know what sociologists say about you? They do cultural studies about your culture. They say, 
the word about this generation and the young adults, the group that's older than them. They say that you are the most selfish, most self-centered, the most irresponsible, and the most immature group that has existed since your parents. I'm not making that up. And it's hard to understand because this same group has more money. You know the average teenager spends more than $100 a week? Go figure that. I never knew Benjamin Franklin was even on a bill, let alone. They say that this generation has more money, is better educated, and has more technological resources than any group has preceded them. Yet they say that 30 is now the new 20. By that they say that, that when the generation before you and the generation before the young adults, by the time they were in their 20s, early 20s, that, that most of them had, uh, had married or were committed to marriage. Most of them had bought or, or, or buying a house. Most of them were taking on the responsibilities of life. They were responsible for their own debt. They were responsible for their own income. They were helping their parents instead of their parents helping them. It was a completely kind of different kind of time. And now we've kind of babied our kids and coddled our kids. And, and, and so our kids just go around singing the Toys R Us commercial. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, you know. Listen, implied in the scripture is that there is a day when young adults grow up and say, you know what? I'm going to accept responsibility for what God has given me. I'm going to accept responsibility for the blessings of my life. I'll accept responsibility for the bad things that have happened. But I'm going to go from here and I'm going to walk in that wise and godly path that God has allowed me to walk in. You think that's (laughs) old-fashioned? Bill Gates, in in a book, he wrote Business at the Speed of Light. Now, I have not read this book. I lifted this out of a out of a kind of a thing that described the book, he lays out 11 rules that students uh, do not learn in high school or college, but he says they should. He argues that our feel-good, politically correct teaching have gener- created a generation of kids with no concept of reality, and we have set them up for failure, and so they cannot possibly succeed in the real world. So Bill Gates, not Solomon, Bill Gates, not Scripture, Bill Gates comes up with 11 rules. Rule number one, life is not fair, so get used to it. Period. Rule number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. The world will expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Rule number three. You will not make $40,000 a year right out of high school. You won't be the vice president with a car and a car phone until you both earn a high school or a college degree or you earn your own way. Number four. If you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. He doesn't have tenure. Number five. This is Bill Gates. Flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a different word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. By the way, the wildcats in this room would say amen to that. 
I'm amazed. I, I talk to young people all the time. And, hey, you know, and I know it's tough. I know the economy, and, uh, and we're probably back borderline recession and all that kind of stuff. Again, I talk to them about jobs. And, man, there's just, there's just hardly any jobs out there, you know. And, and I say, well, have you tried McDonald's? And you would have thought I cursed at them. Now, they're without a job. Now, look at me, and I go, well, Pastor Mike, you, you just don't know how much they pay, do you? They don't pay that much. And I just want to look at them, and I, just, I don't say it, but I'm telling you, I think this. I think this about y'all. I think this about young adults. I, when they tell me something like that, I go, you big dummy, it'd be more than what you're making right now. <laughs> then they'll say, well, it's just not worth my time. And I just want to say, well, what marketable skill do you have that's beneficial to society? By the way, for those of you who might be unemployed, survey after survey after survey after survey after survey after survey shows that an employer is more likely to hire somebody who is already working than somebody who's sitting home looking for something. Enough about rule five. Rule six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about your mistakes. Learn from them. Rule number seven, before you were born, your parents were as born as they are now. I love this one. They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, and listening and talk about how cool you are. So before you save the rainforest from the parasites of your parents' generation, try delousing the clothes in your own room. I love it. By the way, we live in an individual society. And in our individual society, we go around thinking life is all about me. The Western United States culture is one of the few cultures in the world that's not a community-driven society or a family or patriarchal-driven society. There are many other societies where multiple families live under one roof, where they all respect one another and where everyone in that family or in that community, in that home, pulls their own weight. It is only the American culture, the Western culture, where the children expect to have their weight pulled by somebody else. It's an interesting concept. Rule 8, your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools, they've abolished failing grades. They will let you try as many times as you want to get the right answer. This doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Rule nine, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get the summers off, and very few employers are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that on your own time. Rule 10, television is not real life. I hate to break it to you, but big time wrestling and reality TV, not real. In real life, people actually do have to leave the coffee shop to go do their jobs. And I think Bill Gates, because he is Bill Gates and the big computer geek who's like richer than anybody, I think he threw this one in just because he is who he is. And uh, rule number 11 is be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. <laughs> Parents, you got to train them up. Young adults, you got to grow up. But then church, we got to step it up. We got to step it up. 
it's not specifically mentioned in the book of Proverbs, but the idea of helping each other with our children was accepted greatly in the Hebrew culture. Therefore, I want you to know that our church will be a church that embraces ministry to our children, tight spot children, teens, and young adults. And we're going to keep investing into them so that they live a life of, of no regret. We have a faithful God who handles those investments, who takes what we do and adds to it so that what is accomplished is something far beyond what we would be able to do in ourselves. I have several books that kind of I've been reading about successful adult ministries and there's four kind of markers that kind of define a successful young adult ministry. Number one is community. Sense of community. It's vital because they believe that life is to be experienced together and they want genuine relationships here. Moms and dads, this is where you and I have to model genuine friendships to others. They want people who when the tire blows out, man, somebody will come alongside and help them change the tire. They get a promotion on the job, they can call them up, have a party, and celebrate their successes. The desire is to be a part of each other's lives. The day-to-day -day stuff, the big stuff, the small, the small stuff, the Jesus Christ stuff, community. That sense of belonging, as you believe. Second, they, they, there's this commitment to depth in the teaching of God's word. There's depth in the teaching of God's word. What happens between high school and college is huge. In high school, you can come to this place and your faith is encouraged, built up. You go to college, your faith is challenged. So what we need is we need in-depth teaching. We need to go deep. We, we don't need ankle-deep teaching. We need in-depth teaching of God's truth and God's word, looking for real answers to the tough questions. They also want responsibility. Not all of them. Some of them want responsibility. And it's strongly valued because there's a group of young people who know that their choices make a difference. Whether the issue is recycling free, um, fair trade or buying, sponsoring a, uh, an impoverished child, serving in the community, respect for your elders, tithing, whatever it is, man, it just goes on and on. Decisions are important. You have to own those and be responsible for them. And then connections. Connections are important. Connections are huge. They want to not only be mentored, but they're ready to mentor others. By the way, let me tell you who they want to be mentored by. They want to be mentored by our wildcats. Our senior citizens. Go figure, at a time when you've got, when you think nobody else wants to hear your stories or your wisdom, there is a generation who would go to dinner with you, who would come over to your house, who would listen to you and pick your brain. Because of all of the age segment groups in society, the young adults trust you the most. Keep investing, wildcats. When my kids get around the table and when my kids have your kids over to our house, they'll sit around the table and they'll talk about church. And that's always a fun thing to listen because it's like 
I'm so closely wrapped up in this thing, and I'm just waiting for them to unload it. And it's always positive. It's always fun. They talk about things that I have long since forgotten, and they will laugh, and they will talk about things. And I'll hear some of you talk about how Lowell Mullins and, and Corbett Wilson taught a junior high boys class, how Wanda Coates, before Jack and Jill taught junior church, Wanda Coates taught, and Cheryl Meehan taught our children's ministry, and, and, and people who just invested in port, and they'll laugh, and they'll talk, and, and they'll talk about, my kids will talk about the Wildcats, and, and one of the first trips we ever took with them, went to Wisconsin Dales, and, and we went um, go-karting, and Jim Coates, and Peggy Wilson, or, or Peggy Mullins, I'm sorry, Peggy and, um, and Jim are just gunning for my kids, trying to spin out my little kids on the go-kart, I'm telling you. Some of the greatest memories my kids have are wrapped up in church. Keep investing. Every age group in church, keep investing. And then if you're a young adult, man, flip it. Look to somebody to mentor. Look for a teenager. Look for a, a, an older elementary student and start pouring into their life. Connection. Connection. Through this series, I want you to be encouraged. Parents, we got to train them up. Young, young adults got to grow up. Church has got to step it up. And when all that happens, I think that, that God shows up. I really do. I, I think the series has shown uh, that young adults are seeking the very things that one can find as they walk with God. And it's our responsibility to accurately reflect in our personal lives and in our church this sold out life of no regret passion to Jesus Christ. God's faithful. Keep investing. I believe there's a great return on our investment coming. God is faithful. The Holy Spirit keeps compounding your investments and your efforts. And, and young people, it's tough at times, but keep on investing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Moms and dads, you might be discouraged today by your child who might have stepped out from the path of the wise and godly living to go a path of their own. But be faithful. Be faithful. Keep investing in their lives. Keep praying for them. Keep asking and bombarding the throne room of God to bring people and events and activities in their way that might point them back to that wise and godly way that you train them up to go. Model Christ in your home. Man, parents buying good books to read about subjects that interest them. Yes, there's work to do, but we're committed to the goal because the cost is great. We refuse to lose a generation. Listen, we refuse to lose a generation. We're committed to investing. We're committed to training them up. We're committed to honoring God, to staying connected, because I believe that there's a great revival going to come. And that revival is going to be led by young adults who have left a, a way of their own making. And they've come back to that wise and that true way. I think God is just getting ready to do something great. And in that generation that we've been talking about the last four weeks, I'm telling you, I think God is going to do some incredible things that when we get to heaven with the viewpoint of eternity looking back, we're going to go, wow, the investments were worthwhile after.
You know, this morning I'm talking probably to some parents. And man, you're just tired of the investing. And you want me to say, Pastor, can I just take the week off, the day off, the month off, the year off? No, you got to keep investing. You say, Pastor, I don't have college-age kids. My, my kids are young. Well, you ought to praise God. You have tremendous time to invest in them. Don't waste a day. You're here and you're a teenager, you're a young adult, man. Accept the challenge to grow up. If you're responsible, man... Live responsibly. Get your homework done on time. Here's a novel concept. Clean your room. You say, what's that got to do with responsibility? There's a principle in the Bible that says if we take care of the little things, then God trusts us with bigger things. And if we're not faithful in the little things, then God never does give us the privilege of bigger things. And some of you will never have the privilege of bigger things because you're not faithful with the, the little things. We just need to accept responsibility for where we're at in life and what God has given us or maybe what has not been given to us and say, this is where I am and this is what, what is. And from this point forward, I'm going to walk in the way of the wise and the godly. And then as a church, then as a church, and when we have things like Fall Festival, that's like an all-hands-on-deck event. Because we're pouring in to children and to the parents of children. When we, have, when we have vacation Bible school, man, it's like pouring in. And children's church, you ought to volunteer, tot spot, everyone ought to serve there. And, and teen ministry, you got to like teenagers, and then we'll talk to you about serving there, all right? Young, young adult ministry, I'm telling you, there ought to be a spot where you're pouring in because we as a church have to step it up. Would you bow your heads and would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm sure that this morning there might be a discouraged mom or dad here today. They trained their child up the best they knew how, narrowed down all the options, and yet they still struggle with the right way. Father, my prayer is that they keep investing, they keep training up. Father, there may be some young adults here and they're struggling with this whole thing of responsibility and, and just accepting responsibility and just stepping into the real world. Father, I pray they claim your promises and they commit to live for you a life with no regret. And Father, I pray as a church, I pray as a church that we don't go, oh, it's just another mission trip. Oh, it's just another Saturday night where our fifth and sixth grade class goes to the Detroit Rescue Mission. And I got, oh, it's just another pamphlet that they sent home to us from Children's Church or Spy Chase. Oh, it's just another memo from Tommy, an email from James. Lord, may we be involved. investors in the lives of not only our children but every child not who just comes to church here
but every child within the region that we live that we have the opportunity to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Father, my prayer is we keep investing. We live a life of no regret. We live a life that's pleasing to you. Would you stand to your feet with your heads bowed in just a moment of invitation? Maybe you're here this morning and you would like to pray. Maybe you're a mom or a dad and you would like to pray for your children. Maybe you're a young adult and you want to pray for your peer group. Maybe you're just a member of the church or you consider this your home church. teenager and you just want to say, God, deepen and embolden my faith. Keep investing. Keep investing. And there's a return on your investment coming. Keep investing. As Don sings, that the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to your heart.
Consecrated, fully given to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you'll just sing this little tune with me. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice. Take my voice and let me sing. silver and my 
Take my intellect. Sing this, church. Take my intellect and use every power as we sing that again. Take my intellect. Take my intellect and use. It's all an offering to Him.
It's 